Hello everyone, this is Flo. Welcome to yet another summer episode. They're coming and coming and coming. Expert interviews, so much to talk about. Episode of the Great War podcast. Who are I, we going I to like that new branding. That I think that'll yeah, work. It, it rolls really off, rolls off the yeah, tongue. Yeah, maybe we should put it, make an acronym of it or something. So today we're talking about someone I have never heard of. Yeah, I was also new to a gentleman by the name of Hugh Gibson when I found out about the uh, edited volumes of his writings, his voluminous writings, that were edited by the guest on our podcast, Vivian Reed, an independent historian in the US. So why should I care about Gibson? Why should you care about Gibson? Why do I now care about Hugh Gibson? In a nutshell, this guy was basically like the Forrest Gump of World War I and after conflicts uh, diplomacy. He's an American diplomat. He's in Belgium at the outbreak of the war. Then he's involved in all sorts of humanitarian relief during the war. Then during the peace conference, he's in Paris as part of the American delegation. Then he ends up in Poland for most of the Polish-Soviet war. He's involved in investigating the pogroms there. And then he ends up in Belgium when the Germans invade in 1940. And he's actually a pretty funny guy. So he, you know, it's not a sort of volumes of dry, you know, diplomatic observations. He talks about people he hates. He uh, jokes around, he's a bit self-deprecating and stuff. So uh, he's kind of a unique guy. And I'm glad that I, that I discovered uh, Ms. Reed's uh, edited volumes of his work. Yeah, I think so too. I had no no idea about this guy, and you know, you know, we always like to talk about the people in the first row when it comes to diplomacy, like the Paris Peace Conference. He was, I would say, second row uh, because he was there, and I can I think these kind of observations are very unique. So this is like a, a unique perspective into these things, and like as you said, he's. Um, I think Forrest Gump is a good metaphor. I mean, at some point he was he was mocked by a Cuban journalist before World War One. So it's like he, he came around. So without further ado, um, enjoy the interview that Jesse conducted with Vivian Reed. Um, if you want to ask questions to the experts that we interview quite regularly on the podcast, or even ask us questions for the podcast that we can uh, research the answers for for you, how can the people do that, Jesse? They can become supporters of ours on Patreon. The podcast is free for everyone to listen to. Um, and if you want to ask questions and you're a Patreon supporter, then we will. And if you want to ask questions, the ticket is Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the great war. And now enjoy the interview. So I'm very happy today to welcome to the Great War podcast uh, Vivian Reed, who's an independent historian and from what I hear, an excellent piano teacher. And she has edited and commented on a couple of books that we're going to talk about today that are selections from the writings of Hugh Gibson. Now, you may not have heard of Hugh Gibson before, but he is uh, an interesting guy who was at an interesting place at an interesting time during and just after the First World War. He's an American diplomat 
who served in a few different capacities during the war years and just afterwards. And so far, one book has been published, um, edited by Ms. Reed, called An American in Warsaw, 1919 to 1924. And forthcoming, going to be released a little bit later this year, is An American in Europe at War and Peace, which covers 1918 and 1919. So Vivian, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm glad to have you on the show. Thank you, Jesse. I'm happy to be here today. Great. So let's tackle the basics first. Now, Hugh Gibson's a very interesting character, but he's also not someone who is, you know, super well known amongst the general public. So uh, tell us, who is Hugh Gibson and what did he do? Hugh was an unusual diplomat that wasn't um, raised in the typical um, wealthy circles. The biography was quite interesting. I mean, you, you start with a middle-class boy who loses his father and becomes um, entranced with the idea of diplomacy, going to Sciences Po in Paris. That's unusual. And then even being admitted to that school is unusual. But doing well, passing foreign service exams, flying colors at the first try is also unusual. And then here's this young man who's done these things, and then he's mule packing in Tegucigalpa and going to Cuba. And there was all kinds of things going on between the U.S. and Cuba at that time, the different tariffs. And, you know, he gets mugged, clubbed on the head in a bar. You know, that's kind of interesting. Then you go, then you go to Belgium and, you know, just within weeks, the Great War begins. And actually, Gibson was in Belgium first in 1914, but then later as ambassador when um, both wars started. He, he watched both invasions from, Bru from Brussels. So it's just this interesting uh, continuum. When in, in Brussels the first time in 1914, he also met his future wife. So he married into Belgian kind of minor aristocracy with her with her family. But, you know, that that tied him there. I, Michael Francis Gibson was born in his son was born in Brussels. So there's all these connections that increased the feeling. You had asked me earlier if he felt comfortable in French living in France during that year or living in Poland. Poland was a different thing. It had to be learned a little bit, but Paris was familiar. Um, I haven't explored much his experience in Brazil, but I have a feeling there's going to be interest there too, just knowing who Gibson is. And this connection with Hoover was constant. So in Belgium, when the Great War breaks out, in Belgium, when World War II breaks out, in Poland, for the start and end of the Polish-Soviet War, I guess if one is squeamish, one doesn't want to be hanging on his coattails <laughs> that much. No. So now that we know a bit about Gibson himself, what about your connection with Gibson? Why did you end up choosing to uh, edit these books about him? What sort of drew you to the story? Well, there, there were three main hooks that drew me in and a lot of uh, kind of serendipitous surprises. That is what finally pulled me into Gibson. My original project looked at Herbert Hoover's 1946 Global Famine Survey Expedition. And Gibson kept the most complete and entertaining story uh, diary of the trip. So that's where I started. 
and his own words were the first hook. His breadth and depth of knowledge and kind of the good humor. I mean, he was a funny guy too. So he, um, the humor attracted me and just the kindness. So he himself was the first hook with his own words. Um, when I contacted the Gibson family for permission to publish in 2010, I also asked permission to ask a few questions. Michael Francis Gibson, Hugh's only son, who was in his 80s and in ill, Ill health at the time, agreed. Uh, those few questions, however, quickly became thousands of questions as our friendship grew over the years. Michael himself became the second hook for me. I had the honor of visiting him in uh, 2013 in Paris with his family, and he spent quite a bit of his last few years uh, schooling me in all things Gibson. He passed away in 2017. So Michael and I went through Hugh's diary together from 1946, and Michael identified the people and gave me context for the stories I was reading. And although Hoover and Gibson had visited several European capitals, even Gibson's beloved belt, Brussels, the emotion he expressed when he got to Warsaw in March 1946 was different. It was raw and palpable. When I asked Michael why this was so, he answered, well, of course it was. My father lived in Warsaw as the U.S. ambassador for five years, the first of Poland's modern existence. And that was my final hook. Because you see, my mother was born in Warsaw in 1930, fled with her family on July 31st, 1944. They waited in Vienna for seven years before emigrating to the United States in 1951, as Gibson worked with the displaced persons from Geneva. My family settled in Los Angeles. Gibson's hometown. So those were the hooks for me. Along the way, um, Jan Roman Potasi, Jochen Bowler, who I think you might know, and um, MBB Biskupski lent their assistance. And thus, American in Warsaw was simultaneously published in both English and Polish in 2018. Michael died before he could hold the books, but his he was with the delight of knowing that the publications were secure. Wow, that, then it's no wonder that, uh, that you got hooked to in, into it, uh, particularly with that personal connection. I think that really Pretty adds... Pretty powerful uh, hooks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that adds something to the story beyond, uh, you know, just beyond the, the historical aspect of it, which is always interesting. How did you decide what to include in these edited volumes and what not to? Kind of what were your criteria for saying, yes, this I want to have in the edited version and this, maybe we leave in the originals. Ah, that's a, that's a good question. So we, we went, um, Michael, Michael Gibson helped create some of those parameters, and we did it somewhat chronologically so that we had a set of documents that explained what Gibson was doing during a certain time period. And then within that, um, we stuck primarily with the narrative that was given by the uh, diaries, and often his form of diary was a letter to his mother. The other, um, she was widowed and all of his siblings died in childhood. So it was just the two of them. She was a very political person and quite a force in California at the turn of the century. Um, so he would, she kept them all as, as his diary, but that's how he expressed most of his things. So we have this set of documents 
And so we took out some of the chit chat, like, oh, mom, I have a cold today, that kind of stuff that isn't really historically important. And that was the main criteria. Pretty much everything we left. Um, some of the letters later, so after um, Gibson and Inez married in 1922 in Poland, um, the letters to his mother kind of dwindled a little bit. And at the same time, the State Department required uh, weekly political reports. So at that time, we kind of switched gears and used the letters when they were there and had helpful information, but switched to the political reports. And those we did pick and choose a little bit because there would be pages and pages and pages of Polish constitutional debates, which I have to say the Polish version of the book has more of those than the English version for obvious reasons. Um, so that those were kind of the parameters of how we chose. Okay, yeah, that must have been a, a quite an interesting sort of creative process to mm -hmm. take the knife to it and, and shape this narrative, and which I sounds had to like... I knife more than I wanted to because of... No doubt. <laughs> no doubt, yeah. Okay, now let's get into Gibson's time as a diplomat. He was in Paris when uh, the peace conference was underway. So what are some of the kind of notable impressions that he wrote about? So Gibson's involvement with the peace conference was surprisingly intimate. Um, imagine, if you will, a, a photo of the big four in Paris, and there's always a ring of shoes around them in the photo. Gibson's could easily have been one of the shoes at any, uh, at any given time. In addition to being the uh, diplomatic advisor to General Pershing, he was also advisor to um, Dennis Nolan, who was the commander of G2. He worked closely with presidential advisor Edward House, Secretary of State Robert Lansing, and chairman of the American delegation, uh, Frank Polk. He consulted with these men, as well as top British and French officials on a near daily basis collaborated on many of the uh, reports, and had multiple trips to the front and other places where negotiations were taking place. Although Gibson was on a fact-finding trip in Eastern Europe when the conference officially began in January 1919, he was in telegraphic contexts, contact with the main players regularly. Once he returned to Paris, the conference became the stuff of everyday life until his appointment as minister to Warsaw in April. Even then, he continued briefing various conference subcommittees and attended the signing of the, the peace at Versailles on June 28th. Much lesser known was the critical Treaty of St. Germain signed on September 10th. Gibson worked closely with Polk and also attended that signing. An American in Europe is full of Gibson's hopes and fears for various co uh, conference decisions. His words often proved shockingly prophetic. So while he's um, involved in all of this, uh, I suppose that in his writings he shared uh, some of his own opinions uh, about what was going on. So what were some of what were some of his own personal thoughts? I think um, he, he was very much uh, one of your later. One of the questions later was about the um, Wilson's idea. And Gibson was very, 
idealistic in some ways and very practical in others. So the ideas of promoting um, self-determination, for example, was important to him. But he also saw the problems that were coming up that were going to um, undermine the ability to do that well. Um, and those were those were the primary issues that he struggled with in all different forms with different people and nations and things. But um, that was probably the basic struggle and earlier the frustration of uh, the war issues and confusions and different things with, with that. Was there any kind of... Uh culture clash in a way? Did he sort of have any experiences in France or with, you know, European ways of doing things, either in the professional context, right, like as a diplomat, or just living there that kind of stuck out or that he mentions? In terms of living there, I, I would say no. He had lived there as a student, um, was totally fluent in, in French and a comfortable living there and, and with European ways, he'd already lived in Europe on a couple of occasions. And so I think that part was comfortable. I think any kind time there's conflict, people are generally uncomfortable. So in, in that respect, um, as the person who sent in to make the conflict better, that's an inherently tense situation. You mentioned his, uh, his good humor. Are there any particular instances like, uh, you know, anecdotes or, or jokes that he puts into the book that really like sort of stick out at you? Um, well, that's something I wish I had I, well, both more time and, and <laughs> access to the script for. He would often just throw these pithy little marks at the, remarks at the end of um, his diary for the day, sometimes relating with the people that he met during the day. One of the things that uh, strike rem I remember from Poland is the trouble with the Polish names. And, you know, he would, he would joke about, you know, if he met one person and every day for a week he would remember. But if he met 100 people at once, there was no way he would ever remember all those names. So that was one way, because I think many of us would struggle with some of those issues. Um, someone asked him once, um, if he if he remembered him as some important dignitary and Gibson's mind gone had gone blank at the moment. So he says, of course, I remember who I am. Do you know who I am? <laughs> and kind of turned <laughs> it around on him. So he just had a way and it kind of um, it seemed to defuse tense situations and um, anxious people. Yeah, I mean, uh, having having an appropriately applied sense of humor is is, I think, quite useful in, in diplomatic uh, circles. Mm -hmm. Was there anybody, was there anybody that he really hated that, you know, mm -hmm. he, he writes like, oh, I just, you know, couldn't stand this guy or this group or this political party or any, anything like that? Seldom, but there, there were a few, um, especially during the Great War. He wasn't fond of Germans. <laughs> He was which not is, alone in that. Which, is, which was predictable. Um, I think probably the most frustrating people were him, for him were American diplomats and propagandists who he felt caused trouble in some way from, from his point of view about how things should go. And there were, there were several of those along the way. Some frustration with foreign leaders, but usually along the same. He was a very... Um, 
expected everyone to behave honestly and decently. And when people didn't, he complained about everyone if they didn't behave that way. And those who did, he wasn't very picky about what racial background or, or any of the other things. That was what he looked at. Can you name names? <laughs> did he like, did he rage about, I don't know, Clemenceau or the Kaiser or uh, anybody like that? Possibly a little bit, but the primary one that's coming to mind was an American. Um, and it's uh -huh. William Bullitt in coming back from Russia and some of his comments. Um, he was, he wasn't always clear about what exactly he was angry about in that Um I had to do quite a bit of figuring even to figure out what the context was just from what he said in the diary. But he was really upset about the trouble he perceived that Bullitt's behavior and, and reports caused. So it was things like that. Yeah, we actually mentioned Bullitt's uh, mission to Russia in one, of our, in one of our episodes about the Russian Civil War. So there's a, there's a connoisseur's connection going on, I suppose. Uh-huh. Okay, let's, uh, let's switch the focus maybe over to Poland a little bit. Okay. He's sitting there in Warsaw at a major hotspot, and we've, we've covered the Polish-Soviet War, the first phase of it, uh, but we're going to return to it on a couple of occasions. What is his position uh, in terms of like, what, what, what's his understanding? What's his interpretation of, of what's going on? How does he assess the Poles' activities, um, because I'm assuming he's not too fond of the Bolsheviks. You're absolutely right in that assumption. <laughs> so by the time that started, the Poles had already gone through several governments, and there were some problems with um, the Poles pulling themselves together to be able to combat things in, a, in the most positive way, at the same time as Americans were moving toward isolationism and moving away from supporting Poland. So Gibson was kind of in the middle, desperately wanting to support Poland and help pull Poland to where he thought they should go. Um, but also very clear that this was, this was probably the best and only chance to stop Bolshevism at that border, of which he was strongly in favor of doing. Um, he's, Gibson's often criticized because he wasn't actually in Poland that summer of 1920 during the worst of the battles. So uh, historians have written him off while he wasn't even there. He just ran away. And he really didn't. He, um, because of some of the financial difficulties with the Polish government, Gibson was called back to Washington. And when, uh, when he got to Washington, the real reason they called him there is they wanted him to act as Assistant Secretary of State and stay in Washington. And he refused. He said, my work in Poland is too important. I need to go back. So during that time where those negotiations were happening, yes, he was in Washington, not Poland, but he was doing lecture tours across the country, lobbying for assistance for Polish Poland. He knocked on every door he knew in Washington, which was quite a few, to get official support of some kind, even if it was just uh, military surplus supplies, just something to help his polls um, and did that. And, and as soon as the, he got word that the Bolsheviks were actually approaching Warsaw, he was about to come back. It was greeted in Paris with the news of the, the quote, miracle on the Vistula, um, and was back in Warsaw by the end of August. Um, 
in time to be uh, involved in the aftermath and the the um, putting pieces back together after some major events. So he was there, you know, as things built up and as things cleaned up afterwards. But those middle part, he was advocating for Poland in, in um, the United States. Now, other than the uh, other than the notorious difficulty of Polish names, and I can <laughs> sympathize having had to pronounce some of them on camera over the you course of well. the past year and a half. <laughs> I do my best. I have a couple of Polish friends who I message and get them to, to, to help me out with the pronunciation. But um, did he have any observations, you know, away from his work about Polish culture or um, daily life, society, things, things of that nature? Yes. He found, um, right from the beginning, he found um, life in Warsaw very pleasing um, and, and made lifelong friends with a great number of Poles. Um, he did have some issues with the various Polish governments that went through during his time and um, the rather cumbersome setup that was there to, to do that. And some of the financial difficulties. So he had, you know, the, the official problems. But in terms of the people, um, he had a great affinity for Poles and kind of kept that throughout his whole life as his work in World War II supported. He was part of then the first um, aid to Poland, again with Hoover. In 1939 already, they had uh, Polish relief set up. So... Um, yeah, he, he was aware that the, he called it internecine uh, squabbles that they had. Mm -hmm. They spent more time arguing about how great they were going to be than just getting down to the tasks of how do you fix things and get to be great. So he had, you know, he was pretty realistic about a people that he also grew to love. Okay. Um, now, part of that conflict and of the Russian Civil War in, in, in general uh, which, of course, is closely related, right, to the Polish-Soviet War, uh, were these series of different pogroms at different times carried out by different groups against the local Jewish population. What was Gibson's uh, connection with that? This is one of the most important questions, I think, and it's one that needs to be answered pretty carefully. Um, Gibson began learning about what became known as the Jewish problem during his term as liaison to the Polish National Committee. Um, by the time he arrived in Warsaw in April, he was already pretty well versed in the problem and understood the issue from multiple points of view. His first order of business in Warsaw, both by his own um, inclination and by official instruction, was to investigate and report the findings both to the State Department and to the Peace Conference in Paris, um, kind of in preparation for the, the impending investigation by Henry Morgenthau. So in May of 1919, Gibson teamed up with Dr. Boris Bogan, who was the head of the Jewish Joint Distribution Committee in Warsaw, and they visited villages where pogroms had been reported. Um, they interviewed people individually. They interviewed people in groups. They went into homes and synagogues um, and did really a fair amount of personal observation of the situation. And they heard some of what they expected to hear that awful things had happened. But they didn't hear the kinds of reports that had been in the headlines in the Western press. So they found kind of a, a difference there. Um, a, a, a group would complain that 
we had been arrested for a couple of hours and it kind of messed up our day and we missed the train and this guy got beat up and, you know, the headlines would read, read hundreds killed, that kind of thing. Um, the New York Times, for example, would publish lists of persons killed by name. And on two or three occasions, Gibson and Bogan interviewed them in their homes and they were alive and well. So that was that was the main takeaway that, yes, bad things were happening and need to be corrected. But the extent of it was not the same as people were perceiving in the West because of that. So he wrote up this balanced kind of report about what was happening in Poland and how some of the food shortages created food riots that were a little bit different than pogroms and, you know, all these different things that were happening, which was well received by his superiors. But it was not very well received by the American Jewish representatives in Paris. Uh, Louis Marshall, Felix Frankfurter, and Louis Brandes took really public exception to Gibson's report, lambasting him in the New York Times. But Gibson took the time while he was in Paris um, to spend many hours with those three men and eventually convince them. Uh, he went point by point to their objections and uh, they were convinced of his opinion. And you might ask um, how I know that, because they never made a public apology or retraction. So how do I know that? And the, the proof didn't come for a year later. Um, on June 17th, 1920, when Gibson was in Washington instead of Poland, the Joint Jewish Distribution Committee had an honorarium dinner in which Gibson was uh, hailed as a friend to Polish Jews. Gibson recorded in his, in his diary that night, the same Louis Marshall who denounced me in the New York papers made a speech that was fit to be engraved on my tombstone. That is, if I had a few acres of tombstone. The others followed in the same strain, and before I got through, I had a very high opinion of myself, <laughs> with typical Gibson humor. So, you know, he was able to work with people who had strongly different opinions than he, um, and persuasively argue his case. Okay, that, that's quite interesting. Um, just as a, as a quick aside, the investigation that he was a part of focused mostly on pogroms committed by Polish forces or by all sorts of different forces on the territory of the Second Republic? I think he was aware of all sorts of different ones. I think he was specifically looking at ones that were reported to have been committed by Polish troops um, okay, for the that's... purpose of the, the, the peace conference's ability to work with Poland. Yeah, that, that context is important in the in the bigger picture of, of mm -hmm. what uh, what's going on in the in the region. Sure. Okay. Now let's turn to something that's uh, more, I guess, peace related in a sense. Um, now, Gibson was involved with a lot of the humanitarian work that took yes. place around this time. Can you tell us a bit about his involvement there? I mean, generally, what gets the most press is kind of the relief efforts for Belgium during the war and then the relief efforts for, say, Armenia in the, in, after, in, a little bit later. Mm -hmm. So what's uh, Gibson's role in this? During his time in Poland, he actually moved into the, um, the same facility that was used by the ARA, which was getting ready to move out in Poland. And 
as ambassador, then he was the one who received all these volunteers that were coming and doing different things. And there was there were a lot of things going on that weren't simply um, milk for babies or bread for starving people. The the ARA addressed issues like coal in the in the coal fields of Silesia, where there was so much conflict and so much need for the coal coming from there. Um, Hoover sent Anson Goodyear into that to to negotiate and solve the problems, um, which he did. Gibson was, pre- I mean, uh, Goodyear was pretty effective in negotiating with the Germans, but needed Gibson's help to get the Poles to come in and, and negotiate that. So that was one area. And then there were Jewish groups that were working that Gibson worked with, with Dr. Bogan and, and a number of other people, all kinds of religious groups and non-religious groups on the Red Cross. All these different groups were active. And Gibson's role was less serving meals or sitting at negotiating tables as it was coordinating and supporting all these different groups. Um, Hoover had this idea that they would be more effective if the groups all work together rather than competing with each other. So it all kind of went under this loose umbrella of the ARA and then all these groups attacked, uh, tackled their specific problems. So that was one of his major roles with that in, in, in those years in Poland. So sounds like he's kind of putting his diplomatic skill set to good use to get everybody mm-hmm. kind of pulling in the same direction on a, on a very, very tricky topic. We actually cover the Upper Silesian uh, conflict in, in one of our, in our next episode, I guess, mm-hmm. as well. So you've created these, uh, these two books and potentially counting, there may be a third uh, project in the future from his time in Belgium. Mm-hmm. But uh, for the book that's already in print in American in Warsaw and for the book that's coming up in the second half of 2020, An American in Europe at War and Peace, if our listeners are now, now their interest has been piqued and they want to find out more about Gibson and, and his story, uh, where can they get their hands on the book? Where's the best place to go looking? Probably the simplest would be Amazon. I think they, I, I know an American in Warsaw is already on Amazon and um, an American in Europe plans to be as soon as it's available. Um, one could also get for the publisher and they're available in some bookstores, but I couldn't tell you exactly which ones, especially in Europe or Canada. There's a few in the U.S. that might have them. And the books are published by uh, De Gruyter, right? The, fir- the new one that's coming out this fall is by De Gruyter Oldenburg. The first one was published by the University of Rochester Press in the U.S. and uh, by Znak uh, in the Polish translation in Poland. Okay, so we'll include the links uh, to all of that good stuff uh, for people who want to know more about Wilson and get their hands on the books. So thank you so much, Vivian, for joining us today. I didn't know much about Gibson before he came to my attention through you and through Jochen Böhler, who co- collaborated uh, on the project. So I really appreciate it. And it sounds like a fascinating read that I want to get more into uh, for upcoming episodes of The Great War, perhaps. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me today and for your interest. Hugh Gibson is an interesting person and anybody I can interest in him makes me happy. So thank you so much. My pleasure.